Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you as spring peeks at us from around the corner here in the mountains of Utah. For housekeeping today, a lot of people have been asking me about the state of Glass Immortals Book 2. Thanks in part to a series of health problems the last year, I am way behind, but I am working on it and making good progress. Fingers crossed I'll finish the book sometime in spring, maybe, (laughs) at which point my publisher will slot it into the production schedule at their earliest availability. In the meantime, pre-order yourself the new Montego novella, which will be out in ebook, hardcover, and audio in late May. Now, on with the show. My guest this week is game developer Aaron Flynn. Aaron is the CEO of Inflection Games, whose first title, Nightingale, will hit early release on Steam sometime this year. Aaron spent much of his career at BioWare, where he worked his way up from tools programmer to studio general manager. He had his hands in a number of massive titles, including the Mass Effect series, the Boulder's Gate series, the Dragon Age series, Neverwinter Nights, Jade Empire, and Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic. Aaron and I get deep into the weeds on development of Nightingale, including game mechanics, the importance of nailing a certain vibe for the player, and the challenges and complexity of creating a new game from scratch. We cover Aaron's career at BioWare, and we talk about the use of early release for small developers and how any creative endeavor has to balance the business and creative sides in order to succeed. Enjoy my conversation with Aaron Flynn. All right, man. Well, I uh, I got to tell you, I uh, I normally don't geek out on these kind of things, uh, but... Uh, I'm like super excited for Nightingale. Oh, well, thanks, Brian. That that means a lot. You know, it's been in development about four years now. So, um, uh, yeah, I appreciate that a ton. You know, we spend a lot of our time being very heads down, working hard and thinking about these things. So when we do come out and uh, get a chance to show it to people and hear from folks, that, that means the world. Thanks, Brian. Well, I, I mean, when when I talk to people that work on larger projects, you know, because I, I, I talk to mostly authors and we tend to be quite insular. And, you know, we rarely work in teams, you know, unless we're doing, you know, work for hire kind of stuff. And so, yeah, we, we definitely have that same experience. Right. Of, <laughs> we're not really sure how things are going to be received or all that. stuff. For sure. Yeah. But you guys kind of have it on like a like when you're working in like a studio, you guys have it on like kind of a bigger scale. Like the, the stakes are bigger. The the, you know, kind of like the audience is bigger, the hopefully bigger. You know, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, it feels that way sometimes, Brian. But, you know, honestly, uh, you know, your teammates can be your best friends or your worst enemies, right? Because if if they're concerned about something or they're feeling an anxiety or a nervousness towards it, then that can be infectious and spread its way around the team as well. And so cause you to have second thoughts like that. So um, before we debuted Nightingale, which was at the Game Awards of 2021, so 14 months ago or so, uh, we were all very nervous about putting that out there. You know, this idea of a of a survival crafting game 
uh, coming out with this Victorian gas lamp fantasy, you know, and, and I'm going to use the word veneer, but hopefully more than a veneer, right? With actually going deep into the elements of the gameplay and touching all aspects of it was uh, we really didn't know how that was going to be accepted, how that would be received. It could have been a, you know, a simple, as simple as, well, I don't want that. Thanks. Like, I don't, I think that's weird. And, and anybody who does this creatively runs that risk, right? It doesn't matter if you're an author or a filmmaker or a artist or video game maker, right? You, you're putting something out there that you hope player, it's going to resonate with folks, resonate with your audience. Um, but until you, until you get that feedback, to get that sense, you're all, you're just going by your instincts and by the occasional bit of signal you get from people you trust and such. And so we had some of that going in there, but we were certainly very nervous going into that reveal about uh, the game we were putting out there. Oh, for sure. And uh, like, I, there are so many different aspects that you guys have got to juggle uh, when you're kind of approaching this stuff, because you've got the game itself. Uh, you've got, you've got the, um, the mechanics and the kind of the underlying just how everything works you've got the vibe um vibe i think of a lot when it comes to games i've got something like 850 hours in valheim oh nice and it's like it's mostly the vibe the vibe of valheim is like perfect even where other parts of it lack it's just amazing the the kind of feeling i get as a player and i I kind of just watching the um, kind of previews for Nightingale and you're reading your interview, past interviews and things like that. I, I get the feeling that you guys were very focused on vibe. Oh, absolutely, Brian. You know, um, there's an expression I learned making games uh, a while ago, which is um, we like because and we love despite. And and that is really an example of, you know, you, when you say you talk about things, you know, products or services or even art you like. You'll often just describe its component pieces, right? And they'll say, I, I like doing this, I like doing this. But when you fall in love with something, as it sounds like you have with Valheim, it, it's really those intangibles that take over. And then any little flaws, any things, they're just gone to you, right? You just don't care. That's things. And 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 I I, I adore Valheim. I think it's a triumph of, of game development, especially for the team that made it being so small. And and so I hear what you're saying about it. And to put that many hours in, as you say, it's just about the vibe. It's about it's about it all kind of working together in this way that lets you ignore or look past the little things that are bothersome or, or, you know, could be better because you're about, you're about the whole. And, and we definitely want that for Nightingale, right? We want that same feeling that our game will go into early access. Our game will not be perfect by any stretch. Um, but if we get the vibe, right, if we get from that highest level, that feeling of being a realm walker, who's adventuring and exploring and discovering and using realm cards and, and and finding those mysteries that we all love so much about this kind of setting, then then the other stuff will 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 get done and dealt with, you know, over time, right? It'll come in as uh, as we improve it and hear from players how we want to how we want to change those things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I um the the realm cards. I was reading up on this, and I mean, I apologize to my listeners because I'm going to geek about crap that they probably <laughs> don't care about, and I don't care either. <laughs> so I love this stuff. The realm cards kind of system, I was reading up about that, and I, I really love that. I think that it's kind of the, the, the way that you are separating your biomes, essentially, by gates. Okay. That, that is one of those things with Valheim, with the way that they have to kind of restart the world every time they introduce new content. And the way that you guys are setting up with the gates and the cards and everything, I kind of love that. It's, it's, like a, it's a brilliant way to be able to introduce more um, content whenever you guys want that isn't immediately around the player. They can jump through a gate and 
there's new content. And I love that. Uh, wow. Thanks, Brian. Yeah. Well, hopefully you get a chance to play it soon and it'll, it'll be everything you're hoping it is there. Um, it is a pretty cool system as I've seen it come together. You know, I'm a technologist by training. I'm a computer programmer. Um, I did my early parts of my career developing the software and, and supporting those who were on the creative side of the industry and, and crafting those kinds of experiences in earlier games. Uh, and so, you know, that engendered in me a real appreciation for what technology can do. Technology is not the end all be all of these games. Valheim is a beautiful example of that, you know, made by a small team using a lot of really, really smart and clever use of, of, of technology that exists. Uh, but when we, as you say, when we started thinking about realm cards, you know, it was actually two things that really provoked that in us. One was we knew we'd be a smaller team. And so we thought, well, how can we, how can we do things and make things as, as a team that punches above our weight and, and shows an industry that, that, Hey, there's cool things here. And so that's where we got very heavily into procedural content generation and this idea that, well, what if, what if the computers did a lot of the heavy lifting that many times our artists or our designers are, are find themselves doing by hand, right? Over and over and over again. And so we, we started liking that and we said, well, that would be one way. So we looked, spent a lot of time on that. And then secondly, you know, as more and more games adopt this notion of being a live service and, and you know, which is just to say more content is going to come, more experiences are going to come over the course of, of um, the life cycle of the game. It's not just about trying to get it all in one package and then put that one package out there. You've got to have a critical mass of that for players so they're in love with it and they're engaged with it, but you don't have to do everything all at once. You know, Valheim's Mistlands example is a great example that I love the Mistlands, right? And, but here it is 18 months after they launched the game, right? That's, that's just how games can be made nowadays. We, we kind of put those two things together and said, well, I wonder what would be a good interface for that and what would be, what would be, uh, how could that work? And Realm Cards was the answer to that, where we had these, especially these portals and players will get to play the Realm Cards that define what's on the other side of that. And as we did that more and more, we could because of the procedural content nature of the game. So when you, when you play a, a desert biome, for example, it's easy for us to go and, and assemble that desert on the other side of that portal. We've got that technology now. Um, but then as we've done that more and more, we've had more and more fun imagining finer and finer grained control over that experience on the other side. So, um, you know, if you want, if you want less wolves, you can play a less wolves card. If you want to get, uh, I've got a rare card that gives me bonuses to my iron ore extraction, right? So I want to go play that. And and you and I are playing, let's say, Brian, and you can be like, yeah, yeah I need iron, Aaron. So so could you, could you play your card? I could really use that extra iron we're going to get from this. Yeah, sure. Bop, I play that too. And so it's become this kind of thing in its own. And I think if we do our jobs right, we'll ultimately form the meta for, for our game and get us a lot of opportunity to mix and match and play around with things. And I hope players discover card combinations and opportunities that we we didn't even think of in the in the studio i i feel like i i I might be in the minority on this but as a gamer i actually kind of love the um kind of early access dev cycle Mm. uh and 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 i think i probably am in the minority but i love watching it especially when when it's a dedicated team behind it um stuff like Stuff like Oxygen Not Included. Mm-hmm. I can go back to that game every six to 12 months and spend another 20 or 30 hours in it. And just, and I, I already spent that money. I'm just diving back in and yep. there's no, oh, it's just so much fun to be able to do that. And Valheim, the exact same thing there. And so I, I love it when there is a dedicated team that is, that puts out a game 
that I can enjoy on day one, but that just keeps getting better. And I think that's the that's the secret to it, right? Brian is 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 in the earliest days of early access when it was just a kind of a brand new distribution idea. Uh, teams could put out, uh, you know, what you'd say is an idea or really something evocative there, but but very unfinished. And you could bring uh, communities along for the ride. They they were great with that. But as that model has matured over the past probably ten years or so, that there is still the need to engage players and to and to get them to understand excuse me, a lot of the fundamentals of what of what your game is about there. So it's got to be enough content and mechanics there to do that. But but the real powers, as you say, is, is is a chance to learn every time you put something out there, feed those lessons learned back into the development with a with the teams dedicated and then and then have them come back with with answers and solutions and, and new opportunities for players to go do things. And you know, we only make Nightingale here. That's the only that's the only game we make. We decided very early and committed ourselves very early. That we didn't want to, uh, you know, split our split ourselves too thin, spread ourselves too thin, and find ourselves, you know, kind of falling in love with something else and not finishing this and stuff. So we we fought hard to just make Nightingale, and that could be tense at times because you kind of go, "It's all or feels like it's all or nothing." Sometimes, right? We've got to make Nightingale great, but I think it's also long term for us. It's been clarifying and it's been it's been motivating for us. I uh, I was curious um, because I I'm curious for context for both me and the listeners. Um, so I, I think Valheim, if I remember right, it's either five people or seven people is the team. Uh, Iron Gate, yeah, the, the they were five folks when they first launched, and um, and I think they're a little bigger now. But but I mean they're not a, they're by no means a big team. They might be a little bigger than five, but they're not they're not fifty now. I don't think. So how big is your team at Inflection? Yeah, so we're actually about one hundred and twenty folks now. So yeah. um, and there's a couple reasons for that. One is we've been very fortunate to. Uh, meet and, and uh, connect with some folks in the industry um, who are very passionate about the genre and, and have a lot to contribute to with a game like Nightingale. Um, we have a more uh, sophisticated uh, back-end set of services that we're building out. And there's a big difference between what we're doing here and what traditional um, survival crafting games do, at least in their earliest days. Um, we our our infrastructure for for that stuff is much more like an MMO than it is uh, your traditional survival crafting game, and so that's got a lot of people working on it. Um, and because we don't use voxels like Minecraft or or Valheim does, we do have to have more artists and more folks to build more more beautiful art uh, and stuff like that. So um, that's where kind of the difference begins to begins to show itself. I still think it's an absolute miracle that Valheim got made with five folks. I just think, uh, you know, if I ever meet those folks, I would just have to, you know, get down on one knee and and say, I don't know how you did that. I think it's just a miracle and an achievement that that in my experience in the industry is is unmatched. I, I can't, you know, one of the greatest things about being in this industry is still seeing games and, and seeing things where you go, I just don't know how they did that. I just don't. Right. And, and I feel like I know a lot about how games get made and still, a game comes along every now and then that makes you go, how, how could they do that? Right. So we are a much bigger team than, than Valheim. We look more like some of the teams, like a, like an arc or a Conan kind of survival crafting, which, which don't use, which use unreal and don't use voxels. But all that said, you know, that's not what players care about or what they want to know. They want to know what that experience is that's coming out and what they, how they have fun and how they do stuff like that. So we've got to make sure all those things are in service of, as you say, the vibe and players having a great time and 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 experiencing what we want them to experience. 
Well, and you were um, you were studio general manager at Bioware for quite a long time, right? That's right. Yeah, I did. I was at Bioware for 17 years total, and I did the first half of my career there as a software developer and a technology leader. Uh, and then I shifted my focus when we were acquired by Electronic Arts in 2008. And uh, I started doing, I was the general manager uh, named by Ray and Greg, our founders in 2009. And I oversaw Mass Effect and Dragon Age and helped uh, work with those franchises and teams for another eight years. I mean, that that is I, honestly another little bit of gushing. I apologize. But your resume is stupidly cool. Uh, like, <laughs> well, thanks, Brian. That's, you know, I, uh, I'm honestly just like a lot of folks in this industry, just a, a, a person who, you know, found themselves in the right place at the right time and, and fell in love with what they got to do and felt very lucky that I got to do it with a group of folks who were so talented and so hardworking and so committed to the craft. And I learned a lot from that. And, and, you know, my job now is to, engender that in our own team members. You know, we've got a lot of folks here who come from Bioware and have experience in other big AAA studios. But I think one of the neatest things about the industry nowadays is we've hired several dozen uh, folks right out of school. And they are, that's how I started Bioware, right out of school. Uh, You know, I was very fortunate that uh, the story goes that a fellow quit because he moved to Vancouver from Edmonton and they needed somebody and my resume is at the top of the pile. So they called me and I, you know, kind of, stammered my way through a job interview and they said, okay, fine, you can start, you got things. And and I, you know, did my best with that opportunity, but uh, to watch what these young folks can do nowadays is it's remarkable, you know, with the tools that they have, we didn't have the internet even back then, Brian, like we didn't even, like when you didn't know, when you saw a problem in your game, you, you had nowhere to go except maybe a, a technical manual that might've been given to you uh, and passed around. And that was it. Like you didn't know what to email. You would know you know website to go to. So you're just like, oh boy, how do I figure this out? Um, and nowadays, what what the younger developers, all developers, in fact, but the younger developers certainly benefit from it, is just the the enormous enormous pile of information about how games work and and how certain technologies like Unreal or Unity work and stuff. And and that means they just solve things so fast now, and they're just so good. Um, especially when when they're curious, especially when they're motivated, especially when they're they can they can understand what they're trying to accomplish, and they can just they can just spend their time and commit themselves to it. Well, and I imagine that nowadays uh, development isn't all that different from kind of kind of like the behind the scenes isn't all that different from like like if I have a problem with my car, I can Google something extremely specific. <laughs> And sure. there is a chat room with professional mechanics that discuss this problem. And I imagine that the same thing is at least semi-accessible to developers. Oh, absolutely. You know, um, you know, Unity and Unreal have become so prominent in the industry as technologies, right? That that there are just thousands and tens of thousands of people who know them, you know, and to your point, quite intimately and can understand that. And so, and they can help you and they can, and they can answer those questions for you. And that's just one of the amazing things about the games industry is whether it's conferences like GDC or, or just these kinds of forums and, and meetups that happen. It's such a giving community of creative folks. They, they really just want to see you succeed and they're happy to get a little window into what is happening somewhere. And so they, they give and they, and they exchange knowledge so freely and openly because it's all just about Maybe that'll come back around one day, right? So sure, let's all just talk about these things and let's not be shy about these things. Games are hard to make. They still are hard to make. We're not nearly as mature an entertainment medium as as you know, films or television or, or anything like that. So 
So there's still some some dark art to it sometimes. Is how, how these things happen. But uh, but yeah, as you say, like it's 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 a truly giving community for information that that it just is helping everybody. Well, and it's you know like I think any uh, especially with creative uh, kind of endeavors, people. People want to have a community. They want to be able to be able to talk to people at conventions or online. Not necess- Sometimes it can be their coworkers if they're at a bigger place, but not necessarily. You don't necessarily want to always be talking to your coworkers about this kind of stuff. Oh, you're so right, Brian. You know, then that's one of the things that that is a challenge for us up here in Edmonton. That, that's gotten a little better. Like we're here in northern Canada. You know, it's it's a city of about a million folks. It's um. I apologize, but I don't know where you live, but Edmonton is like the American Midwest. You know, it's like a St. Louis or something like that. Like it's, it's kind of cold in the winter and, you know, you look around, it's pretty flat, you know, it's kind of this kind of stuff. There's a, there's this, but that's, that's kind of the place we're in. But, you know, it is not, at least before Bioware started in the, in the mid nineties, it is, it is not any sort of hub of game development, right? We're fortunate that we have a university here, which is a big a big national research institution for that. And they've got a wonderful computing science program. It's the one I proudly went to, uh, but, uh, and, and there's been some real achievements there, but uh, you know, other than that, like, it's just, it's kind of like this blue collar town that is this. And then lo and behold, three medical doctors gather this ragtag group of folks and they start building computer games here and gets it on the map for that and it begins to attract developers and begins to build up an institutional knowledge in the community of that but edmonton does not have that thriving community like a montreal does or a los angeles does or or you know an irvine california where blizzard is and things like that so so it's always developers here in edmonton are always a little nervous and a little like i wish i could talk to more people and stuff um obviously the internet and other things have helped that a ton but uh, we're only now with Inflection and Bioware and, and other studios now forming here. We're only now just getting those things in the summertime where you'll go to a pub and sure enough, you'll meet other people who work in the games industry. That's really cool. And so we're only now just seeing that the past few years, just prior to the pandemic. So um, that's been a really nice evolution after 20 plus years of, of being quite isolated. But uh, I, more of that, please. Like that's just a wonderful evolution for for our little community here and I hope to I hope that grows and continues to improve. Hey Page Break listeners, Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. I grew up in in Cleveland, so Midwest town, uh, Rust Belt. Like totally, just like Edmonton, yeah. <laughs> right. So I'm 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 curious whether because this is a huge problem in kind of in Ohio in the Midwest. Period. Do you guys struggle to get talent to come to what a lot of people, especially coastal oh, people, totally. think of as the middle of nowhere? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we are just like just like Ohio or things. We're a flyover province in Canada, right? Like you go from Toronto and or Montreal and the in the east to you go to Vancouver on the over the mountains, right? And it's like you kind of look out occasionally, but you're having your 
your coffee or your or your little snack from the flight and you see oh what, what am i flying over there's edmonton yeah this little this little city so no yeah how quaint yeah oh i wonder what happens down there i don't know let's say no you're totally right brian that's exactly how it is here and so uh, we've been fortunate that we've we've uh, with buyer's reputation in the early 2000s and, and onward, it, it did attract folks. But now, of course, there's remote work, right? And so now remote work revolutionizes that again and disrupts it all by saying, well, fortunately for, for us and for other studios, where you're headquartered and where you have a physical space isn't nearly as important now that you can connect with Again, incredibly talented and experienced game developers uh, around the world, and they can they can uh, join your team and, and contribute massively. Our um, our audio team, for example, here, even though we're based in Edmonton, Canada, they're all in the UK. They're all out of out of London and surrounding areas, right? Uh, where we used to work with at Improbable, they were from that team. And when we left Improbable uh, with our new funding arrangement, they joined us. They said, "We want to go with you guys." So so we said, "This is great." So we took them along with us. And so now our audio team is remote. Um, about six of folks over there doing that. And, you know, that would be, that, you know, before 2020, that would be nine impossibility, right? It would be just, that can't happen. I'm sorry, guys. I appreciate you want to work on Nightingale, but we just, it's just, there's just no way to make that work. Like nowadays, there's so much infrastructure and so much ability to do what we're doing here, even just get in a laptop or a thing and chat and talk and stuff, time zones still being the last probably vestige of, of an operational challenge that are difficult to overcome. You go, well, it's great. We're, we're connecting. We're developing something together. We're, 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 uh, we're doing, we got to get done. Well, and that's, that's super cool. And, and I think it's not, I mean, it's not just the, it's not just the uh, technology, but it's also the mentality, you know, like, mm-hmm. and, and this is, you know, just as someone who, you know, sits alone in my basement office, uh, doing my little books, uh, you know, I read these things about like this kind of corporate war for whether we're going into the office anymore. Yeah. And it's <laughs> it's kind of an interesting thing how the pandemic kind of made it like, oh, we actually can use this available technology totally. for everyone to work from home if they want or need yeah. to. You know, you're exactly right, Brian. You know, I'm a I'm a pretty big believer. You you chatted earlier about you know, got this team and this team has to have a common understanding and get that vibe and then when they understand the vibe that you want to build and they can build that vibe into the game, right? I think I'm a big believer in that being present with each other, at least some of the time is is really critical for that. And so we do two days a week in the studio where we we want people to come in and, and be present for each other and have face-to-face chats and, and, and collaborate with things like that. But um, that's, of course, balanced with now everyone's expectations for some more flexibility and, and the, I can do some work at home. I can have all this infrastructure that helps me do that. And so that's that's the balance we're striking. And I think it's pretty good so far right now. I think that's working. But but yeah, I know you you watch some of these, you know, I guess they're corporate executives and stuff like that. And they're, you know, table pounding, get back in the office. It's like, what for? Like, what's the... I, I like seeing people around the studio. I like chatting with them. I like being a person, to, a human being to them. And I like interacting that way. But I certainly can't. I, I don't have. Don't feel like I have much to stand on when it says you have to be in five days a week. You have to do that. Only in rare circumstances can I see that being being absolutely critical. Well, and it, it is. It, it does feel like a different discussion when you're talking about, you know, a, a place where, you know, a company where it's all spreadsheets versus a company where they're trying to create something and and the communication has to be a little bit more uh hands-on um you know a game studio a movie studio um you know some of these places they do kind of need to be able to see each other sometimes uh and and get that vibe going you know people 
you're going to work better on a creative endeavor with somebody that you are friends with, um, somebody that you understand that you've yeah. gone out to drinks with after work, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So true, Brian. I mean, you're so, you're so right there. Like it's, it's game development is still not mature enough. And I guess all creative things are like this when you get it down to it, but, but you just don't have all the answers. And so you have to go into these, these, these efforts being humble and, and respecting that you have ideas and you have thoughts and you can, you know, you can connect some dots, but you don't have all the answers. And so you got to be able to listen to folks and, and again, be human with each other about, well, how do we, how do we make this better? How do we do that? And I think we've been at our worst when we've gone into certain things, thinking we have all the answers and, and um, we just don't. And you just got to recognize that that's not what any creative endeavor is about, especially one that is so complex and has so many dependencies. It's technology, it's art, it's design, it's, it's budgets and spreadsheets, and all this stuff, right? We don't have all the time in the world. We don't have all the money in the world. So we've got to be smart about that. We've got to think about how these things put pressures and constraints on other things. And then you've got to kind of spend time at a whiteboard and draw it out or share notes and talk to each other and, and, you know, feel the emotion of all that in there. And if you do that and the better you can do that, the better, I think the better your game development is. Oh yeah, for sure. It's well, and it's complexity is something um, I come back to a lot on this podcast because I'm really fascinated by it because you get a lot of, I mean, most of us are these kind of armchair nerds that would love <laughs> to, to talk about, Oh, why didn't this movie succeed? Oh, they failed in these ways. And the fact is, is that when you're working on a creative endeavor with a team of people that can that can be really tiny sometimes, you know, like for me, one person plus, you know, my editor and a few people at the publishing house versus a movie studio where thousands of people have their fingerprints on something like the complexity that you're talking about is, is absolutely insane and really difficult for the average person to actually grasp. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, it is so hard to communicate the, the, as you say, the complexity that goes into any game development, you know, at all, because again, it's the synthesis of art, design, um, engineering, software development, right? And, and all these things. And it's just a very, very hard thing to do. And as I said, then you add in the fact that these uh, technologies and, um, and ideas are always evolving and changing, you know, this industry disrupts itself about every seven years or so and just all of a sudden decides there's an entirely new way to play games and, and to do these things that just throw the old playbook out and start again in some cases uh, and and those of us who who you know spend their time in here uh you know we we gotta do our best to surf that wave and try to be on top of that that as best we can and occasionally you don't and you get under the wave and it comes crashing down on you and you're trying to come back up and get ready to go back in there and stuff. But uh, it is, it is extremely difficult to communicate this. Um, my son who's 16 just started uh, his computing class in high school. And of course, nowadays, great thing for the, to get younger folks to do is to build a game, right? So they start with a, a piece of software called Scratch, which comes from MIT and lets you build games in this really nice modular way and stuff like that. And, and I was working and playing some games on the weekend while he was behind me in our office working on this stuff. And just to, he's grown up with me building games his entire life, right? But um, just watching him go through the same little emotional roller coaster as he was building this thing, as, as I used to and still do and watch our developers do, is remarkable, right? Because it's, it's inherent to the medium, right? He would start and say, okay, I know how to do this. This is going to be great. I know exactly what I do. Okay, well, uh, wait, why didn't that work? Huh, that's weird. That should work. 
No, wait, I figured it out. That's what it is. Okay, yes, I got that fixed. Okay, no, wait, still didn't work. What? Oh, no, now I got it. Okay, it did this. And he was just up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. And then he would he would get himself motivated and sad and then excited and then demotivated again. And after about four hours, he had the little game he wanted to make. And uh, he's like, this is great. I love this. This is so fun, right? And I think it's why we all do it, right? It's, you know, I'm sure you're the same, Brian, as you as you craft a, you know, a, a world as you do in your novels and stuff like that. You think, I know exactly what the story I want to tell here. And then you'll kind of go, oh, wait, well, how's that character going to engage in it? Shoot, I, didn't, I thought that would work better than this. Okay. Oh, wait, oh, I can do this. Yeah. I'm sure you're on that same creative roller coaster as you think about these things and as you try to try to craft something from nothing, right? Oh, absolutely. It's, I mean, it's an ongoing thing where you just, you know, you hate yourself a little one day and then you think that you are a genius this other day. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, up and down. I, uh, I worked with a creative director uh, at BioWare named Mike and uh, uh, we were once in an executive review on, I think it was Dragon Age Inquisition, um, which we had to take a step back and really rethink how the Dragon Age universe worked here. And uh, we had, we're about six or nine months before launch somewhere there. So the game was largely baked, but we're just kind of iterating and adjusting on the important parts of it. And one of the executives who was visiting said uh, some of the effect of, well, you know, could, could you add this thing? Cause I think that would really add a lot to the, to the game. And, and Mike, uh, you know, being Mike kind of looked across the table and he said, well, our job is to make something from nothing. So yes, we can do anything you want in that way, but you know, and he really had this eloquent way of saying that. And I, I've always, that's always stuck with me in the 10 or so years since he said it, which is, yeah, like very few people actually get to make something from nothing, starting literally from nothing. And it's all just up in here and, and how you learn to do that and how you um, practice that skill and reason about that as you try to get better at it. It's a, it, it's a real privilege to get to do it every day and, and with folks you care about and stuff. And, uh, and again, whether it's novels or games or films or TV, it's, it's all essentially the same thing, right? You just, we all start from nothing and have to make something. And I, I was, I was kind of curious because you, you get when, you, you know, I, I mentioned before the, the armchair nerds, um, <laughs> as we all know exactly what I'm talking about when I say, Oh, I'm an armchair nerd, Brian. You don't have to explain it to me. I'm totally that armchair nerd. Yes. <laughs> right. A lot of the times kind of there's a lot of per, kind of perspective from the ground that looks at especially big endeavors like games and movies, sure. TV, that kind of thing, and says, oh, this was ruined by the suits, by the executive. <laughs> right. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of curious about your perspective on that from someone who has been both kind of the peon that, you know, building it from the ground, but also the person at the top looking down because there is, we've already talked about complexity. There is so much going on here. Uh, like kind of, how do you feel about having had both of those perspectives? Yeah, that's a really good question, Brian. Um, so, you know, I can't, I've been fortunate. I haven't been in a situation where, you know, I've, we've been doing something amazing and then the quote unquote suits come along and, and, and ruin it. Right. And, and I hope I haven't been that suit to anybody um, in my role as a decision maker or things like that. Um, the, uh, but I think what I've learned and I'd offer this, you know, for your thoughts is, um, you know, the, the best people to oversee a project and to, and to help and nurture it and, and, and uh, sustain it and, and get it to where we all want to be, which is, you know, greatness, excellence is a person who has tremendous empathy for the, the creative craft and, and the people who are doing it, right? And, and we all know where you get empathy from. Generally, you get empathy from walking a mile in someone else's shoes and, and feeling like, okay, I know what you're going through. I understand that, right? And, and I think where those, where those stories are, are more true 
is when you get somebody who is, you know, a final decision maker on something, but they cannot say they've walked a mile in the shoes of those developers or, or those creative individuals and their background is just very different, right? But I have seen in my own career, my own experience where that pressure comes and that difficulty in communicating something to somebody who is who has your fate in their hands and who does that. Um, and and you're struggling to to get that empathy, right? And it's not because they're an unempathetic person necessarily. It's not that. It's because they they struggle to relate to what you're going through here and what you're what you're doing. And so what I try to do and what I, I hope I'm doing every day is taking the experience that I learned as a developer myself and always being able to relate challenges that 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 our development team would be having here to my own struggles and to my own things that I learned the hard way that yeah this is this kind of stuff is hard and of course it's changing so you got to update your your understanding of these things and you still have to set a high standard for for you know what you want your developers to achieve but at the same time everything should be grounded in that sense of empathy and sense of understanding that I know this is hard and and you know I'm not here to tell you it's going to be easy I'm not here to tell you that um you know you're a bad person because it's hard. Far from it, right? You're you're experiencing what every creative individual experiences when they, you know, they butt up against the difficulties of crafting something from nothing, right? But if we all start from there and if we stick to that and 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 worked on that, then then it'll work out. It it'll you'll get to the right solutions and, and it'll go there. So yeah, that's been my understanding of this, and and I have seen and in, in experienced at least secondhand when that lack of empathy is there and you're just like, wow, that's, this is a really tough conversation, isn't it? Because you don't have any idea what I'm talking about when I say this thing is challenging or doesn't work the way you're saying it does or can't work the way you say it does. Um, and, and it's probably fair to say, Brian, that, that, you know, when I've, when I've made mistakes in my career uh, as a leader, it's because I've lost, I, I've been too focused on something else and I've lost that sense of like, no, no, hold on. I got to take a step back here. This is a human being I'm talking to who is trying their best and is is working hard at something. So let me let me remember what it was like to be that person, you know, and uh, and struggling with something and recognize that that's still the industry we work in. So how do we how do we solve it together? Well, and there's the um, there's that additional, you know, again going back to complexity. There's the additional complexity of you know you being the CEO, you're you're steering the, the this big ship, and like kind of the end goal needs to both have kind of creative implications. It needs to please people. It needs to entertain people. It, uh, you know, touch them, you know, kind of, uh, you're going to have people that are emotionally invested in your final product, um, which, you know, doesn't happen with a toilet paper CEO. <laughs> and, and so you've got that, but also you're running a business. You got to make money. You've got to please investors or, or be able to write yourself a check at the end of the day. Yeah. There is, that balance there that's especially in the creative world i feel like from fans fans tend to not appreciate that maybe as much as they should yeah that's really interesting brian i think yeah i mean you're you're probably onto something there you know like the the thing that any anybody and and you know you're probably the same as you as you you know are the master of your own destiny about the novels you want to write and should i work on this thing or should i go work over here you've got opportunity costs you've got to consider right and I'm sure you got bills to pay and stuff. So you think to yourself, oh, I wonder I should do this, right? But um, the, uh, the the thing that that is is I think just so important and so fundamental is to just remember that um, you know constraints can be a good thing, and it's 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 a it's a smart it's a smart opportunity to think about well, how would I do this in the simplest possible form, and how would what would be the easiest way to go to this, um, and then grow outwards from there, right? And 
you know, I, I know that when I think about budgets and think about these things, time is the greatest gift you can give any, any game development endeavor, I think, you know, which is to say you want to give the most amount of time because game development is a lot like a search. You're learning over the course of, especially something brand new, like Nightingale is you're learning over the course of it, what you want to go do. And so the more time you have to do that, the better. But of course, at the same time, if humans being humans, if you don't manage that time and apportion it fairly and reasonably and don't and don't work with people to make, you know, progress openly and transparently on things, then then your risk kind of it going flat and you just you're making no progress at all. Right. So so I've always been working with Ray and Greg. They were always the founders of Bioware. They're always amazing at, at ensuring we as developers had the most amount of time to make our games and and the best games we made always ended up taking more time than we originally thought. But by the same token, they also did over the course of game development, they learned that there's a way to manage that process and manage teams in a way that keeps us all accountable to progress and keeps us all open about what we're working on and what our challenges are so that we can make adjustments and, and shifts uh, towards the uh, towards the uh, vision of the game. Well, and that's kind of the um, that's kind of the, the third thing that I I didn't mention when I said kind of end goals of the product that you're doing. You also don't want your employees to all hate you at the end of the day. <laughs> That'd be like, nice. Yeah, <laughs> you, you got to work with these people. You've got yeah. to kind of you got to manage it in a way so that you're not demanding literally everything from them. Yeah. Yeah. No, and you know, you're so right, Brian. And you know, this goes back to something you mentioned earlier, which is this notion of early access and stuff like that, which is the challenge for a lot of uh game development teams nowadays, and it's I think it's a little harder when it's something brand new, but is to is to try to get that game idea, that that experience down to the to the most essential nucleus of what you want players to experience, right? That such that is there's nothing there's nothing or very little extraneous about it there's you haven't wasted time over here when you're not going to present that to your players um that's your kind of dollar efficiency your cost efficiency of your development thing you mentioned but but nowadays we have this opportunity to just get that incredible interesting nucleus of game development done there right and put that out there and say you know here's our game i hope you like it right and you know, there's very few games that have to be the end all be all to to continue their reputation, you know, and these games go on to sell tens and tens and tens of millions of copies, right, and make billions of dollars, right. Um, but uh, you don't, it takes a very specialized studio to go to that and a very specialized culture of developers to go to that. Um, nowadays, smaller teams like ours or much smaller teams like Iron Gate who make Valheim, they have these opportunities to put something out there that they think is amazing thing. But but only focus on what is most important there, um, and and leave nothing. Don't waste your time on extraneous things or there because you can you can learn from your players in the community who will hopefully fall in love with what you're doing about what they want to go do next, and then you can prioritize your your extra work, your additional work based on that. And that's a that's a nice model, honestly. Like it's a it's a it's a more mature way of doing things than we were doing things in the called the mid two thousands where it's amazing, there's 3D, we're doing this cool stuff for consoles, it's great. And you just felt like we had to do it all, right? And and you still want to be ambitious, but you've got this ability now to sort of apportion your work and say, well, I just want to make sure players feel this. Okay, well, you know, for us, that's, for Nightingale, for example, that is traveling through portals, right? Like we really just want to make sure players, amongst the other things they'll go do, you know, like in chopping trees down and, and, and harvesting iron and that kind of stuff, we really want the, that magic of going through a portal to come through so they feel that. And let's give them those opportunities in there and then 
the kinds of places they can go more and more we can add to in the future. But but we got to make sure players feel that that magic of walking through a portal that they commanded and they controlled with their realm cards. And then that becomes, I think, the time when we we show uh, players of these games what's unique and special about Nightingale. And hopefully that's where they fall in love with the universe and say, okay, now the sky is open for me. Now I see the potential here. Just, just make more of that inflection. Just go make some more of that, please. And we'll work hard to do that. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We keep talking about Valheim because it's such a massive success in this same genre. Um, but it's it's about the fact that that you can keep giving the keep giving the players a sense of wonder even after they've put a hundred hours into the game. You know, like with Valheim, it is it is getting onto the ocean for the first time and and sailing oh, yeah. to a new biome, and suddenly you feel like you've started the game over. Yeah, but you haven't. You've got progress, but there's a new thing and. And I think, I mean, I, you know, I already gushed a little bit about the whole, the, the idea of the portals and the card system, uh, but I, I absolutely see kind of the potential to give players that, that a refresh on the sense of wonder. Oh, I, I hope so, Brian. I mean, that's the, that's that vibe you're talking about, right? That magic, that, that thing that just is like, this is, I haven't, I haven't felt this before and, and I'm compelled, right? I'm, I'm excited as a player to go see where this leads to. And I guess maybe that's a, that's just such a fundamental human thing that curiosity that's as you say that sense of wonder that comes when when you experience them like that and as game developers we get a chance to to do that for players in beautiful 3d with amazing art and visuals um where they have some agency in the whole thing right they get to control elements of their of their experience and and so yes we just have to capture that for players in nightingale but i think for us, when I when you boil it right down, it's that thing of just we want to get players to travel through portals and just see how amazing things can be on the other side of that portal. I, uh, as someone who has has watched kind of the development of Valheim from the beginning, because I, I played it the first week when it came out, I, I I've loved it. Not Bravo. I've loved it from day one. I'm curious, you know, because I and I and I follow the subreddit uh, for Valheim and watching the way kind of fans react and the game developers kind of counter react and, and that kind of dance with an open development game. Are you kind of dreading the first six months that Nightingale's out? Oh yeah, absolutely. In that sense that, you know, we're still, uh, yeah, I'm very nervous about putting it out there. Right. Cause it won't be, it won't be a perfect game. It, it won't be like, it'll be, it'll have 
shortcomings for players and things that they just would say, I wish it did this. I wish it did that. It's like, yeah, sorry, we couldn't get that done or we never intended to do that. I don't know why you thought that. So, so that's always kind of got to get over that thing. Right. But, um, but once you get over that initial impact with, with players and, and, and our game should be very good for players. It should achieve, you know, what a good game does, which is still draw many, many people into the, to the experience and get them excited to play more. Then comes, I think, a, a, just an amazing thing that that studios get to do now that we didn't get to do as part of as part of Bioware, or part of um, EA, to the extent that I think we can now, which is just collaborate with those fans and just work with them and listen to them and 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 offer suggestions to them and get very confident about what you want to build next because you're hearing it directly from some very passionate people who appreciate and love what you're doing and that's again very very humbling right to do that. So I'm excited to do that. The, as you say, there will be that initial one to two weeks of impact where, you know, hopefully lots of people will go play it. And then you're going to be like, okay, well, you love that. That's great. And oh, sorry, didn't have that. Oh, I really wanted to do that, folks. And we can still do it, but it's not there quite yet. There'll be those things. And then if you've, as you say, if, you, if you've done it right, then it's, they still love it despite those shortcomings. And then you, and then you just work in earnest to, to continue to grow and improve and, and make it, make it cooler and just give them cooler experiences, right? You know? Someone's gonna someone's gonna say, oh, I wish there was a you know a volcano realm you can go to, right? And I'd be like, oh, that's cool. Yeah, volcanoes are neat. Let's we could probably build volcanoes, couldn't we? How do that? And then those creative juices get flowing, and then someone does this, and, and before you know it, there's kind of this weird volcano realm you could spin up and in a portal and be like, oh, that's really cool. We should just go with that. And then you know that that you've got some confidence that uh, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be received well. Yeah, for sure. It's it's such a weird it's kind of a weird place that we find ourselves as creative people, you know, whatever level of kind of creativity you see, because there is an ongoing dialogue now with everyone. Oh, absolutely. And that kind of changes the way you build new things. Yeah. Um, And, 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 and you as the creator, you know, for for instance, you as a CEO, who's steering the ship, you kind of have, you, you kind of have a position, I would imagine, where you, you kind of have to be careful about, I need to be aware of what people really want and love, sure. but I also need to not let, you know, random 325 on yeah. on Reddit yeah. steer my company. You're still right, Brian. Yeah, exactly right. Like, we have to have our own compass, right? We have to know what we want to go do, and and we have to be true to that, and we have to we have to trust ourselves to do that, right? But you know, those to keep my, keep my sailing, maybe my sailing metaphor going here. They, they, we have to say that there's some winds blowing. So let's respect those winds, but let's, you know, let's trust that we'll maneuver those winds, manage those winds as we go, but we have our own destination we're going to. But, you know, it's, as you say, like going back to armchair nerds, I, I mean, I think, you know, it turns out thanks to social media, there's a lot more armchair nerds than, than we probably thought there were, you know, maybe 10, 20 years ago. And maybe what's worse is now all those armchair nerds have got megaphones and are standing outside your house and are doing this, right? And and that's just reality today. That's so you can't, there's no point in being upset about it. It's just, it's how it works. But uh, you just have to respect and appreciate that's what it is. And now, you know, manage yourselves accordingly. But as you say, the thing you can't do is you can't, you can't begin to lose your authenticity to what you're trying to go do and sacrifice that. You have to remain authentic to what you're what your vision is for what you're trying to do here. Right. And, and, a, and a guy with, you know, a guy with 5 million, million viewers on Twitch might be your worst enemy or he might be your best friend. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that true? Yeah. It's so true. <laughs> yeah. So true. 
it's it's very much like uh it, it's like it's like you know watching football or something you know with you with with uncle bob and he's you know yelling at the coaches except it's game development or writing you know or a movie or whatever yeah no you're you're so right and and you know i am a i'm a big uh, football fan so i watch the nfl a lot so i am that that uncle yelling at the screen like don't that's a terrible play what are you doing right so i i do get it and i do understand um and like i said i just you know it, but if you actually you know kind of put me in a lie detector test and say Aaron, do you really think you know more about this sport than the people who does? I would say, no, no, sir, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just passionate. Like I'm just, I'm living it with all them and the emotions are coming out and you got to recognize that too. It doesn't mean people can be, should be jerks by any stretch, but you know, it is again, the world we live in nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's interesting. And I bet it's, I bet it's kind of fascinating looking back at that, you know, as you've already referenced kind of the days of game development before widespread internet, uh, just such a different place. Oh yeah. And like Brian, and it seemed to just happen overnight. Like we went from, we went from all working in our respective basements, as you were saying, you know, effectively, you know, and if you were lucky, you had some teammates with you who had, um, perspective or thoughts or, or lessons learned about things. And so you could learn from them to like a switch all of a sudden, now the whole world's watching us. Now everything we do is, is just out there exposed and, and, and present and, and people, you know, when we put something out there and it is uh, it's, it's flawed or has some problem with it. Um, you know, those, those people, those fans can sometimes assume the worst, right. In the same way that, that when they, when they play a great experience, they assume you're wizards. You're these amazing, you know, magicians who are doing things that are impossible, right? And of course, everything is understandable at some level, right? It's just, here's how we did it. Here's how it worked. It's clever for sure, right? It can be very clever, but at the same time, it's all by definition understandable. And yet, you know, that same that same appreciation you might have when, when you feel like you're elevated by these fans for doing really cool things, it can also be the other way around and you can be, you know, pressed down because of because of a problem or something that didn't live up to their expectations. And again, that just seemed to happen overnight. It seemed to happen around 2010. We went from, like I said, just toiling away with nobody really knowing anything to all of a sudden everybody knows everything about what's going on. You're like, how'd that happen? This is, I just went to bed last night and it was different, but here we are. <laughs> I, I feel like you get that a little bit with things like, like epic fantasy novels and Dungeons and Dragons. You know, like 20 years ago, these were things that, you know, that the super geeky kids at, school read under the table yeah. you know kind of thing or or played in the basement their mom's basement and then you know nowadays you know wizards of the coast makes a decision about dungeons and dragons it hits mainstream news oh absolutely yeah yeah you know we get we get new game of thrones shows new uh lord of the rings shows yeah. like these things are suddenly holy crap like regular people know about them yeah i mean lord of the rings was the most expensive tv show ever made right like in that and you know back to your business hat you know, no one is going to spend that much money on that unless they have some belief that there's enough people out there who are going to love this and, and enjoy it to make it worth their while, right? So to, you're absolutely right. Like the the market sizes, the number of people who appreciate this thing is just, it's enormous now. It's, 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 it's incredible how many people want fantasy and science fiction and these things as part of their lives and as opposed to, you know, more traditional or more grounded contemporary kind of storytelling, right? And so that's that's wonderful for guys like you and I because we can say, hey, great, we we know a bit about that. We can help do that. 
but as you say, the expectations go ever higher too. And, and nowadays you've got to make sure you, you live up to those expectations. Right. Like I sometimes laugh with my friends, you know, because when you're in, when you're like, when you're kind of a mid-list author, you know, you're always thinking, oh, am I going to hit the times list next time? You know, am I going to, am I going to have a big breakout success? Ah, okay. But like, I sometimes joke with my friends that like, I have reached this weird sweet spot in my career where I make quite good money, but I also don't have a million people pouring over every single word of my books. Right. Yeah. And so it's, it's a balance, right? That's amazing, Brian. I didn't realize that that's, uh, that's you know, in the games industry and, and, and maybe you could tell me how it works with novels, but uh, the games industry is classically described as a hits-driven business, right? And what that typically means is, is that, you know, for round numbers, 10% of all the games make 90% of the money, right? You know, or get 90% of the players. And that's your Fortnites, your Grand Theft Autos, your, your these things. Um, and I believe better, more so than ever now, better than ever, there is the opportunity to put out really interesting and unique experiences because there's, you know, a billion players, two billion players out there in the world. You can put something out there and and if you can figure out how to to show people that it exists, yeah, there's enough people there that they will love it that you can you can probably pay the bills and 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 uh, if you manage yourself well. Yeah, writing uh, with novels, it's it's very similar, except mm. because it is so accessible to the average person. I would say it's probably way less than one percent is the kind of is what makes all the money. Wow! If you look at the statistics of of how many of how many books are submitted to an agent and then are accepted by an agent, it's like something like one in a thousand or one in ten thousand. That low? And then the agent it turns around to sell it to a publisher, and it's still only like you know, 50% or something like that. So it's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. Wow. It's ridiculous. Wow. And, and so you do have this kind of, you have a massive pool of people who kind of make a, uh, they make vacation money um, or, or even just beer right. money off of their books. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you've got on the other end, you've got, you know, Brandon Sanderson with his yeah. $50 million Kickstarter. Yeah. And, and even bigger authors than that. Yeah. George R. R. Martin, I assume, yeah, guys like that, yeah. Right, George R. R. Martin, yeah. And, and then you know, like I've I've like snuck in somewhere, <laughs> like really like a really niche place where you know, like I'm not I'm not quite there, like I'm not a name, yeah. But like you know, you know, my books continue to sell, and it's great, and it's it's a funny, really, it's a weird perspective to have on the industry that is very much like games, a place where you have to have a hit to really have a career. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, oh, that's fascinating. You know, I guess, I guess the entertainment is, is like that, right? Because as human beings, we all consume entertainment in roughly the same ways. We want to, we want to enjoy things that, that our friends enjoy as well. And so there's always these pressures and social illnesses to, and when things, you know, if I read something that I love, you know, I'm going to recommend it to my friends. Right. And so things, things get, get to get passed around and, and a network effect kicks in. So yeah, that's fascinating, Brian. I did not know that, that it was that, it was that harsh of a, of an environment there for, I mean, I, I, Brian, I'm the furthest thing away from a writer. Like I, I couldn't even, I don't know how I have the patience to sit down and write, a, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages, you know, I'd be, I'd be like George and, and Jerry Seinfeld in that episode where they try to sit down every time and they just, found some little excuse to get up from the table every now and then and do it. And at the end of the day, they got nothing. That'd be me. I just can't, I just don't know how you do it. <laughs> I mean, uh, to be fair, that is one, uh, that is four out of every five days is that. 
<laughs> okay, well, God's good to hear. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, because uh, maybe there's hope for me yet. Maybe I could write a novel someday. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> no, that's that's awesome. Well, I um, I've kept you for quite a long time, but I, I like to I like to ask all of my guests the same left field question to end the podcast, which is um, what is the last food that you ate that blew your mind? Oh, okay, the last food that I ate that blew my mind. Um. Uh, well, okay. So I had a uh, funny question. I had uh, a really, really excellent uh, fried chicken sandwich the other day. Ooh. And it was, it was so good because the, the chicken was exceptional and it was this brined chicken, but it was fried. But what really pushed it over the edge was it was a uh, kind of a Nashville spicy hot sandwich, you know, like that. So it had, had a fair bit of kick to it. And uh, with a bit of maple even in it, I think it was called Maple Hot. Uh, and it was just such a great, such a great uh, selection of flavors. And I was just like, this is, I could eat five of these right now if I wasn't, if I, it was just that enjoyable. Just that little bit of heat gets up in your, in your sinuses, you know, that little bit of sweat happens, but you're just, you can't stop eating, but it's just so much great flavor and everything. Yeah, that would be the thing that just blew my mind. I was just, I was so excited to eat that sandwich. <laughs> I, I I adore a fried chicken sandwich. It's oh yeah yeah. There, there's a, there's a place about 20 minutes from us that makes an amazing fried. It's a the sandwich that I always get is their um, chicken bacon ranch, and it's oh yeah it's, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm holding up my hands. It is yeah. it is massive. Yeah, it's yeah. something like 1500 yeah. calories, so I can't do it very often. Oh jeez, yeah, yeah. This this was a healthy size too. This was pretty big, uh, but. It was just this, as you say, just this great combination of, of, of spice and salt and, and, and fat and, you know, all these things just congealing into this wonderful flavor thing. And I was, I, and again, like, like chicken sandwiches, I mean, they're great, but you know, I kind of bought it like, ah, oh, let's get chicken sandwich. Like how, how, you can't make, you can't go wrong with a chicken sandwich. Right. And so I think my expectations were just sort of a six out of 10, you know, five out of 10. And this thing came along and it was like a nine and a half out of 10. And I was, this is fantastic. This is wonderful. I love that. And I love, I love this trend. I feel like we're seeing more and more of, of um, a little bit of sweet with the hot. Like there's a, there's a pizza place nearby that, that always does um, uh, honey with red pepper in it uh, that you drizzle over your pizza and it's stupidly good. Oh, wow. Yeah. That I've never heard of that. Yeah. So this was maple in this case. Right. But as you say, like just that little bit, it wasn't, it wasn't like eating pancakes. It wasn't like that. Right. It was just, you just bite it. You're like, Oh, that's there. There's the maple. Wow. Yeah. And then the, 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 the cayenne's kicking in, you know, and you're just like, oh yeah, oh yeah, now I'm really feeling it. It's just, yeah, it was just, it was mwah, magnificent. I love that. That was game developer Aaron Flynn. You can find links to the Nightingale website and social media down in the show notes. You can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you're listening to this via Patreon, please stick around for bonus chat during the epilogue. Special thanks to Elijah, Ivor Gullickson, James Clark, Jennifer Johnson, Jason Nall, Kyle Anderson, Sexton Hardcastle, Taylon, Brian, Will Lebelski, and Bradley Thornhill for their backing on Patreon.
we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.